0: I seize the end, what with a start. It's Pox Eclipse, full of pain.
1: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We's looking behind us now, down the long haul to 1985. We seize Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
0: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 55, which begins with Max sitting down for story time with the waiting ones. And it ends with Savannah saying that the wind just stoppered. One man who cannot be stoppered is the one joining us today, the man behind Mad Max Bible, the YouTube channel. Shem Herman. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. Let's talk about the thing. We are kicking it off with Minute 55. This is the beginning of the tell. This is the thing that Slake was so excited about to share with Max, this is their own personal history. And when we wrapped up this past week, Slake was like, it's only right that Savannah tell the story. And so this is the beginning of it. And the main reason we invited Shem on the podcast this week is because this week specifically deals very heavily with the history of the Waiting Ones. And when we talk about the in-world history of the Mad Max
2: series, the first and last name I think of is Shem Herman. (laughs) Well, that that seems to be the case, yes. I'm quite obsessed with the behind the scenes stuff when it comes to Mad Max movies, and actually even more so than the movies themselves, I guess. Uh, Because they actually provide a whole lot of information and, you know, the timeline of events is one of them.
0: Yeah, you've got a great pair of videos on your YouTube channel that I thoroughly enjoyed about the timeline between the movies and how it all works out and how we can view it and understand it. It it was really nice to see it put so simply.
2: It took a long time to actually streamline it in such a way because um, the entire process actually started, I don't know, like a few years ago when I got access to some production documents and behind-the-scenes stuff uh, that totally just turned the entire, you know, my fandom of Mad Max movies, it just flipped it upside down. I mean, it basically ties in with people constantly saying that those movies are myths and, and stuff like this. And I was, you know I was, I, you know, I was on the same boat until I actually got my hands on all this stuff and talked to the right people and it all came from the fact that I was... uh you know, just very I don't know persistent and continuously more more and more obsessive about those movies until I got to the right people. And interestingly enough, when you get to the core people, like you know, we're talking you know Miller and and his and his writers, uh, they will not tell you those things. That's the thing that I discovered. The the further away you get from them, the more information you get and documents and stuff and 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 you know and things like that. And I really wanted to show everybody that you know this sort of thing exists, like, you can figure it out yourself, although I'm really just scratching the surface with that stuff, because I still don't have access to all the documents, and this really ties in with uh, you know the tale that's being told by the kids in the crack in the earth because this thing that I tried to figure out that was the most difficult part. That part was very very difficult to figure out because I don't have any access to to those documents even even though I tried to get some of them uh, from Terry Hayes and you know ask the people. But it's very very difficult because this movie is like what thirty thirty what three years old now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like you know it's it's a lo- you know it's a, that's a lot of guesswork. But still I still have some documents that kind of helped me figure this this thing out. So. Hopefully, uh, everybody will get familiar with this stuff now <laughs> when it comes
1: to those situations where you're asking people
2: to like call back in
1: their memory to that long ago. Personally speaking, I don't have a great memory. Mm-hmm. I've never claimed to have a good memory. I think my canned phrase is, I can't even remember what I had for lunch last week, let mm-hmm. alone what happened five, ten years ago. So, when we had a chance to sit down with Adam Google who was a child when they filmed this movie, yeah. and he was able to remember so much about it, I was amazed. yeah. I guess with a big event like this, it'd be more easy to remember than something rather mundane.
2: Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, yeah.
1: So we start off with Max sitting there, listening, surrounded by children. And I'm looking at Max before we get into what Savannah is actually saying. And I'm looking at him sitting quietly, surrounded by children. And I'm kind of struck by this image because we've been able to see Max in a myriad of of different situations and he always seems to be the quiet and observing sort and he's done it for defensive reasons in the past working with people that he doesn't necessarily trust and it's weird to see him go from being how i would interpret as skeptical and wary in those other situations to here more or less looking a bit softer like yeah he's still quiet and observing but he's not doing it in such a way that is Tinged with cynicism. It seems a bit more genuine.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what I discovered when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode. And basically, this is the point where Max starts caring about those kids, exactly when they start telling, you know, the tale and, and stuff like this. That's why he is, he feels like, you know, a little bit, he looks like he's a bit confused, but at the same time, he's very like responsive to this, like he pays attention. That's what really struck me.
0: It reminds me of when. Max first met and interacted with the feral child back in Road Warrior. Mm -hmm. His dealings with the group as a whole, a bit not necessarily aggressive because he was being passive while he was being taken into custody, but it was dealing with other people in power. Once he was dealing with this individual child, he became much. Softer, more interactive, more imaginative, and actually trying to reach out to the feral child. Kind of the same situation here. He suddenly finds himself one of the only adults, because I do consider Slake and Savannah adults, but anyways.
1: Mm-hmm. They're like on the know, cusp of adulthood. Right. Yeah. yeah,
0: Sitting with these children, he now has kind of switched gears into being a bit softer version of Max. And that definitely calls back to the original movie and having a child that he didn't get to raise, and how he got that taste of what it's like to be an adult in charge of a child, but he didn't really get to follow that through.
1: Max, as far as we've seen in this series, is just very interesting when he gets that chance to interact with kids, because he does seem to soften a bit, but he doesn't soften to the point that it would necessarily change who he is. Like, he was willing to interact with the feral child, but he always kept his distance like he's sitting here listening to what these kids have to say but at the same time he may not be fully invested in them just yet like he's giving them the satisfaction of doing the tell getting a chance to show off that no no they did keep it straight they weren't slack at all
2: yeah that's that's exactly what i noticed when i read the original script uh before this entire telling scene happened the kids pretty much interrogate Max, you know, trying to figure out if he's, you know, Captain Walker and all that. And it's very explicitly stated in the script that Max is actually listening to them instead of dismissing them, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and on top of it all, I mean, there's a lot of things that I actually, you know, read up, you know, in the script. And, for example, there's this thing missing from the movie, which is that when the kids actually start telling the tale, uh, they offer Max some popcorn. That's <laughs> in the script. Uh, but the popcorn is a bowl of small roasted berries, so, they kind of like, you know, the, all those kids, they have this sort of grasp of, you know, the the civilization, you know, the, this old world, mm-hmm. but it's all twisted at the same time. And I think, you know, it's the small things that kind of win him over, you know what I mean?
1: I'm glad that you brought that up. I haven't been following along in the script or the novelization, which is what we have here. Or even with the storybook for this scene because I was just so focused on what was happening. But I love the idea of them passing him a popcorn stand-in because the, for lack of a better term, talking stick that Savannah is holding more or less looks like an outline or a frame
2: for a television. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And you know what? Hold on. Just give me a second because I I wrote it all down the the entire thing, the entire uh, the scene that we'll be talking about later on, with you know, Slick uh, coming up with this little visor thing, right? Mm. Those pictures were supposed to be originally called the showing of a number one blockbuster telling. That's what they called it in the script. Mm-hmm. So those kids, they really have like this, you know, I mean, you know, it's just pretty much the the extension of this this popcorn thing, you know, and their basic understanding of what civilization used to be. That's pretty much how those kids exist, you know? Yeah, they have a fascination with the, the, the video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The thing about this whole infatuation with, you know, of, of those kids with with the civilization, I really didn't understand it at first. Uh, because, you know, it always felt like, okay, those kids, they have it really good over, the, you know, in, in the crack in the earth, they don't have to really worry about a whole lot of things. Uh, but then it sort of dawned on me that those kids, like the entire, this crack in the earth thing, that's, the, the, that's their whole world. They don't know anything outside of that place so the artifacts from the past became their religion and they want to know what's out there it's because they don't know anything like they're just by themselves that's it to me it was kind of like strange i mean to discover this so you know just just recently but that's the entire thing about their existence that's why they want to leave and that's why max you know i mean i'm i'm getting ahead of myself but It was kind of fun to discover, you know.
1: I might have just had a light bulb go on above my head. This is not the first time we've had a group of people in a fairly good situation, and yet they want to abandon it for the possibility of a greater situation, and it's not even going to be the last time that we see it. Ah. You could argue (laughs) that the compound dwellers living in the compound, near unlimited source of gasoline, great situation, but they want to leave it. To go to Sunshine Coast, right. the cr- kids in the crack in the earth, yeah. living in a literal oasis. And they want to leave it behind to go live in a bombed out city. The wives in Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Now, you need to ignore the fact that they're kept as breeding stock and held in literal captivity. But, you know, they have clean air and the best food and clear water and things like that. And they want to leave it behind for the idea of the green place.
2: Plus, if you look at the backstory of all the, you know, all the five wives in Fury Road, they've been kept in captivity. But what made them actually want to go were pieces of information from the outside from the history woman the books that they got Mm. uh so it's just it's it's almost identical in that sense when they want to leave because they don't i mean you know they, they they don't they're sheltered in a way you know that's they're, li- they're stuck in this one place, but all of a sudden you get those sprinkles of information of somewhere else, and all of a sudden they just want to run away.
1: And it wasn't just the artifacts of the books in Fury Road. You had the artifacts of the picture slides mm-hmm. in The Crack in the Earth, and you had the old postcard yeah. that the curmudgeon was carrying right, yeah. around, That's showing off all the beauty of Sunshine
2: Coast. Yeah, that's, yeah. see? Ah. Similar themes all the time, I'm telling you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, George Miller.
2: <laughs> Sly dog.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he's pretty good at this filmmaking. Yeah, he's,
2: he's <laughs> fairly good at it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say it's so. Always yeah, it's always something new.
1: We should get back to what Savannah was actually saying, because we keep talking around her. So she starts off, they're looking back in history, down the long haul into history back, as she says it. And she sees the end. What were the start? It's pox eclipse. Full of pain, and then all of the waiting ones come in with their sound effects that they make with their mouths and yeah. like leaning in on Max, <laughs> adding all I sorts love, of dimension to it.
0: I love the sound effects that they do in the movie, which are pretty good. But in the screenplay and in the novelization, they're better. Wow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they are more extensive, and different demographics within the group have different parts, and it's great. And they they do some like. Writhing around on the ground, oh like pretending to climb out of the wreckage of an airplane, and <laughs> they're much more thorough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I am not at all surprised that that did not make it to the movie, because the what's uh, the behind-the-scenes documentary that we watched, the one that Tina Turner narrates.
1: Oh, I don't remember the name of that one.
0: Whichever one that is, because I can't remember either. There is a behind-the-scenes clip of George Ogilvy directing, <laughs> yeah, wrangling the kids <laughs> to get them to do the sound effects in the plane and the crash and all of that mimicry trying to do it right and on time. And if it had been more complicated, it just wouldn't have worked.
1: Mm -hmm. And I imagine all of this theatricality and involvement is a method that the waiting ones use to help the listeners internalize the story more. Because if you're part of the story, if you play an active role, then you're more interested in what's being heard. And it's probably a device that they use to help. These kids absolutely memorize this stuff.
2: Yeah, and I think it's the same for Max, who's sitting right in front of those kids who are pretending to be the plane. There's like what ten of them behind them pretending to be the, you know, the the plane <laughs> moving. <on. laughs> you know, pretty much the same thing.
0: And in, in the context of religion, which we have pulled in several times over the last several minutes, and we're still going to keep referencing that idea of a religion. In church, you sing hymns all together. Everybody sings yep. because it's unifying and. Everybody is feeling and participating in the same thing all together, and that's very, very important to a group of people.
1: Yep, you've got the singing, you've got the call and responses, you've got the recitations and the memorizations. They're all elements that have been building up for thousands of years now. People learning the different ways to make sure that people actually learn something.
2: Mm-hmm. And all this carried over to Fury Road easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, within the first, you know, 15 minutes, you're going to see all that with the war boys and stuff, you know?
1: All of the religious undertones that George Miller put into this movie, he made them overtones. The <laughs> yeah, <movie>. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you really, uh... Now, with the mention of the pox eclipse, Savannah holds the frame up in front of a painting of a mushroom cloud. Like, this is a literal nuclear explosion. And we had the suggestion of Fallout back in minutes six and seven with the water cellar and Max using his Geiger counter to detect radiation. But I think this is the first specific mention of nuclear holocaust. Yeah, it
2: definitely is.
0: Yeah, I went back and checked. I thought maybe in the opening narration of Road Warrior... They mentioned something specifically about nuclear bombs, but they did not. I went back and checked. I believe you're right. This is the first confirmation.
2: Actually, actually, when I was looking back at some documents that I had, uh, I stumbled upon an interview with Terry Hayes. You know, who wrote the backstory for Mad Max One and Two. When he, you know, basically he had to do it uh, to flesh out the the entire world of Mad Max Two. He, at a certain point, he said that he did not rule out a possibility of a nuclear exchange, but somewhere else in the world. But as far as the entire world of Mad Max, there could have been some nuclear exchange somewhere down the line, but it never really affected Australia. What Australia was, was basically this place where things were spiraling out of control without the nukes dropping Mm -hmm. up until, you know, Beyond Thunderdome. So that's pretty much how it went with the first two movies and Beyond Thunderdome when it comes to that. So, you know, the the entire, we're going to get to that, but... Uh, the entire, you know, the showing of this nuclear, this, this this mushroom cloud, it's, you know, it's all out of whack, you know, basically, when it comes to the story that they're telling, but I wouldn't expect anything better from those kids. They, they don't even know how to speak English properly, as opposed to me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So following the idea of this
1: pox eclipse, this mushroom cloud, Savannah continues saying that, and out of it were birthed crackling dust and fearsome time, it were full on winter. And what that sounds like to me is nuclear fallout and a subsequent nuclear winter. So even if Australia was spared any of the nuclear exchange, it would still be affected because of winds and currents. Yeah by things like nuclear fallout
2: yeah i think so too but i think uh when it comes to this i mean this literally means that australia was hit by nukes yeah max does pretty much say that this pox eclipse
1: blew up all of the big cities mm-hmm. despite the fact that in the opener of road warrior the cities are destroyed by individuals and not you know one specific bomb type of thing
2: yeah the yeah the in the intro to mad max 2 the cities exploded this Pretty much just figurative.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just a side note here. Nuclear fallout, or just simply fallout, is residual radioactive material that's propelled into the upper atmosphere following a nuclear blast. It's so-called because it falls out of the sky after the explosion and the shockwave have passed. It commonly refers to the radioactive dust and ash created when a nuclear weapon explodes. Fallout may get entrained with the products of a pyrocumulus cloud... And fall back as black rain which is just rain darkened by soot and other particulates this radioactive dust is usually consisted of fission products mixed with the bystanding atoms that are neutron activated by exposure and is a highly dangerous kind of radioactive contamination stuff that you really don't want to be hanging out in amongst and then with the full-on winter comment Nuclear winter is the severe and prolonged global climate cooling effect, which is just hypothesized at this point, to occur after a widespread firestorm following a nuclear war. The idea is based on the fact that such fires, large forest fires and things, can send a lot of soot into the stratosphere, where it can block some direct sunlight from reaching the surface of the Earth. So it's speculated that the resulting cooling would lead to widespread crop failure and famine, and in developing computer models of nuclear winter scenarios, researchers used the conventional bombing of Hamburg and the Hiroshima firestorm in World War II as example cases where soot might have been injected into the stratosphere, alongside other observations of natural large-area wildfire storms. Hmm.
0: When Krakatoa erupted in 1883, the fallout that's not fallout, The ash getting up into the atmosphere Mm -hmm. actually dropped the global temperature by like a degree. They call it the year without a summer.
1: That sounds like a book title.
0: (laughs) And it was the year that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. She wrote it because she was stuck inside because it was gross outside. It wasn't summery. As you do. Yes.
1: The idea of this full-on winter scenario is followed up with the statement that Mr. Dead was chasing them all. And I love this idea that the Whiting Ones call the concept of death. Mr. Dead, like they've taken the Grim Reaper and swapped him around and made him their own.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you see, okay, so I'm apparently here just to say what was in the original script, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, as far as uh, those kids' comprehension of what death is, I've actually found it really interesting because in the script, those kids, um, Max, basically when he first meets them, he asks them, where, where are your parents? Mm-hmm. And they say they took the leaving and he doesn't understand what that means. So he says, did they die? And those kids are just baffled. Like what does it, like death, What what is death? Like they don't understand what death is and they don't, like they call it Mr. Dead. I'm not saying that like, you know, maybe they, they understand it in like some sort of like a juvenile way, oh, it's just it's Mr. Dead. They, I don't think they really understand what death is. Those kids, they were really baffled by this question of death by Max. And then when he asked them who gave birth to you like you know who are your parents they 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 didn't understand that either so the only thing the only person that was old enough they recalled was a person called joanna who was she also took the leaving right and she that was slake's mother right i I don't know you know but but she was a fire keeper yeah and she took the leaving with a total of eight people basically and uh so I don't think those kids really understand the concept of death as such. You know, they, maybe they're scared of it. And I'm not entirely sure about that. Mr. Dead might also just be like a boogeyman figure. Kind of like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think they really understand the concept of death. Mm-hmm. I think they understand someone is no longer here, but what exactly that means, I don't think they understand.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, all those kids, I mean, there's nobody, there's no adults around them. And everybody who gets to a certain age, they just go. They go out into the sand, and that's it. So, you know, that's a high possibility that they never actually saw anybody die. It's kind of like the movie North. Now this is going to be a dumb
1: reference, I know. North is a movie with Elijah Wood as the main character and he doesn't like his parents and so he goes into a foster care system willingly and he basically flies around the world getting shipped off to different families so he can see what it's like elsewhere. And at one point he's living with an Eskimo family and there's an old person in the Eskimo family and their retirement plan is basically they sit on an iceberg with a television and a lawn chair and they get pushed out into the ocean. It's incredibly racist. Siskel and Ebert hated this movie.
0: The whole premise of the movie is completely ridiculous. Oh, I
1: know. You can't voluntarily go into the foster system. Well, tell whoever made that movie that. Uh (laughs) It, didn't, it was not a good movie. It, it did not do well. Yeah, no okay. But, <laughs> well. but I kind of see the leaving as that same sort of thing. You reach a certain age, and kind of like we were talking about Fallout 3 with Little Lamplight, you reach a certain age, and then you take the leaving and just go. Yeah. That way the kids
2: never have to see you die in the desert. <laughs> Plus, now that I think about it, when Max is just laying down, covered in ash or something, he basically looks very white. Those kids are still talking to him because they don't understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, they're trying to communicate with him with, the, with a vinyl record on a stick. Like, what is this? Like, you know... the. the <laughs> You know, those kids really don't have a... You know, they're very ignorant, is what I'm trying to say. Very, very ignorant.
0: (laughs) They have no adults around to teach them the concept of someone being unconscious or somebody dying.
1: Looping back to the whole bombs falling thing and how that may or may not have affected the continent. Back when you made your Mad Max timeline part one video, Mm -hmm. when you were talking about the original trilogy, you hypothesized that the Pox Eclipse happened post Mad Max 2, maybe in inside of, I think, a, a year or so.
2: Yeah, something like that, yeah. That basically came from the fact that Mad Max 3 takes place... Well, first of all, Mad Max 1 and 2 are pre-nuclear. That's just... That is a fact. You know, mm. that's that's what uh, George Miller stated, because had Mad Max 2 been after, you know, a nuclear holocaust, it would be a, a completely different movie. It would be pretty much like Beyond Thunderdome or Fury Road. So, um, you know, lack of vegetation, you know, cancer everywhere, you know, poisoned food, water, whatever... So um, I started wondering, when did those nukes drop? And I kind of like noticed, okay, so Beyond Thunderdome takes place 15 years after Mad Max 2. And I basically looked at the age of Savannah, because she's supposed to be 16 in that movie. So I kind of figured, okay, she must have been born somewhere around Mad Max 2. Maybe a year before, maybe she was even on the plane that crashed. Uh, I mean, okay, taking into consideration that this whole story that those kids are telling is all out of whack because you have, you know, the first the nukes and then somehow uh, Captain Walker finds a plane, a seven, you know, a Boeing seven, seven, from seven, and then he crashes it. Like this is just totally unrealistic. But you know, I wouldn't hold those, you know hold it against those kids because you know. They, they really don't have their math to math, as they say it. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, you know, thinking how long before you actually remember things? I mean, how long does it take before you start remembering things, like for real? Like what what's your earliest memory?
1: If you're only like two or three years old, like how many concrete memories are you actually going to be forming at that age?
2: Yeah. So if she was even on the plane, she might not remember those things, but she most definitely doesn't remember the apocalypse so somebody relate that information to her and then she started remembering things when she would, you know, she might be around three, four years old. So this is the time frame, uh, this time little box that I put this whole apocalypse event right after Mad Max 2. I mean, this is just deduction. I mean, it's very difficult for me to actually say what it really was and when it happened uh, because, you know, I still don't have these, those actual documents. If I had them, I would definitely just made another video just, you know, about that. But as far as I know, to me, it's just like, I don't know, two, three years maybe after Mad Max 2, something like that. So I have a question, Julie, I'll start
1: by asking you. Mm -hmm. If we go with the idea, just the guess that this whole pox eclipse full of pain, nuclear fallout, nuclear winter situation hits the Australian continent after Mad Max 2, do you think that Mad Max 3 could have been Max weathering this cataclysmic weather situation so a do you think it would make a good movie and b do you think it would make a better movie than thunderdome that we got
0: Hmm. no i say no because in my research and wonderings about this minute i looked and found a list of nuclear apocalypse movies and that genre was booming in the 80s we didn't need to add to the genre And Thunderdome is in that genre. It is a nuclear apocalypse movie. But there was already enough stuff out there about weathering the fallout. Mm -hmm. We didn't need that story. I think this is a more interesting story about what happens after that.
1: Okay. Shem, I'll ask you the same two questions. Do you think that Max Weathering the Fallout would have made a good movie? And do you think it would have made a better movie than Thunderdome we got?
2: No, I don't think so. I think It's better to know what happened 15 years after, you know, the apocalypse, uh, because we actually get to see the rebirth of the civilization instead of them just wandering around trying to survive. I mean, I don't know, this to me kind of sounds like it's a premise for a movie that's sort of like about zombies, that kind of a thing. Like it's all fighting and it's all very (laughs) bleak. Uh, To me, I find the premise of Beyond Thunderdome, as much as it is not being considered, you know, a a Mad Max movie by many people, I think you know the premise of Beyond Thunderdome is very uplifting in that sense and actually shows us the world that's you know is so far into the future and is so weird that you can't help but kind of piece it together you know I I kind of cl- I cling onto those little things like I see a bumper from a car here I see a wheel over this you know those little things over there like you know I don't know mirrors and and you know on 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 clothing and stuff like that so to me uh, that's way more interesting than just you know uh seeing a person that's uh trying to figure out what to do because there's fallout everywhere and stuff like that so you know
1: i'm glad i asked that question because as i was listening to both of your responses it reminded me that the story of max weathering a nuclear winter is a very man against nature type story and the mad max films are more or less man against society films oh yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, that first one it's max against the culture of motorcycle gangs in the second one it's max against a blossoming raider society versus um, compound society and here it's him versus the civilization that barter town is becoming and it's all about max interacting with groups, it's never about Max interacting with the land around him. Yeah, very true, yeah. And I'm glad you guys reminded me of that. <laughs> just, to <get> back <laughs> yeah, on, welcome. just to get me back on track. <laughs> all right. Savannah continues. She says, but one he couldn't catch, and that were Captain Walker. He gathers up a gang, takes to the air, and flies to the sky. So they left their homes, said Bye bye to the high scrapers, and then all of the children say bye-dee bye bye And what were left of the knowing, they left behind. And then she says, some say the wind just stoppered. Others reckon it were a gang called Turbulence. The way that Savannah tells this story, it sounds like Captain Walker and the other people on the plane survived the whole pox eclipse situation and then jumped on the plane and tried to fly away from the city. I'm getting into speculation here, but I kind of feel like it would be a more believable story if instead of them surviving the pox and then trying to leave on a plane, if they were just on a plane initially and the plane was knocked out of the sky yeah. because of a weather condition related to a bomb going off somewhere.
2: That's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to ask you. Like, what do you think happened on that plane? Was it an EMP blast or was it just turbulence or how the hell did they survive the apocalypse? Like, what do you think?
0: Without looking anything up to verify it, something comes to mind. I was reading up about nuclear bombs and... If I remember correctly, nuclear bombs also act as EMPs. Yes. Okay, so that's correct. So that's probably what happened is a nuclear bomb fell close enough to them that they were affected by the EMP part of that bomb. Mm -hmm. And that's what took them down. I find it hard to believe if the bombs fell and then they found a plane, boarded it and ran away. I find it hard to believe that they found a plane.
2: Yeah, that's the thing, yeah.
1: (laughs) And that it was intact enough for them to fly away. And there was
0: fuel available to fly it away. So I think that they probably saw what was coming down the road. Society was already falling apart because of the fallout blowing in from other places. But before the bombs actually fell in Australia, they read the writing on the wall and got out of there. Where they were going, I'm very curious about where they thought would be better and Mm. where they were headed, where they thought they were going to land that thing. And then they just didn't make it. I think that's more plausible than, oh, no, a bomb fell. Let's go get in this plane and fly away.
1: After the crash, there were enough people that survived that they were able to move as a big group, find the crack in the earth, and start living again, starting to reproduce and have children. And we found out, according to, was it the storybook? That I was reading that said there were 52 children.
0: Yeah, and that's also in the screen
1: To have that many kids, you have a lot of people. And so I imagine if the plane is just flying along like it's a regular commercial pathway, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere an EMP wave comes through the air, fries all the electronics, Captain Walker would be able to land the plane on just manual sheer willpower and strength alone it would probably get buried in the sand and then subsequently covered by sand drift but that just seems like the most reliable idea to me
2: Hmm. i don't know i'm just kind of thinking what the hell like uh, it's very difficult for me to to understand. I mean, okay, the, the easiest explanation, obviously, is that those kids don't know what they're talking about, you know, because yeah, all, all, yes. all, all, all <laughs> of them, you know, they've been born there, except maybe for Savannah, who's kind of old enough to maybe, you know, maybe perhaps, you know, she was on a plane, but, you know, still not old enough to actually remember what happened, but... Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's some options that I was, I was thinking about. Okay, first of all, when they're talking about the nuclear attacks, that could have happened. Maybe, you know, Sydney wasn't struck, maybe it was somewhere else, right? Because clearly they've been flying from Sydney, you know, because we go back there and the pictures on, you know, from from the little thing, they actually show Sydney. So maybe they're talking about this, you know, nuclear attack somewhere else. Maybe that happened, maybe Sydney wasn't really... Although, you know, it's kind of very naive to think that Sydney wouldn't be struck because it's a major city, Right. Right, but then again, maybe there were. I mean, oh, this this thing always keeps coming up whenever I'm talking about this. Uh, the EMP blast, like, when would that happen? Like, would be there another a nuke just flying when they were flying? And you know, uh, so that's another the, the thing. And the third thing is just like the turbulence, or maybe the plane. Maybe they could have found a plane that was barely working, which is why it crashed. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, some options, but we really won't ever know, I don't think. Yeah,
1: I'm not sure anyone is ever going to come right out and say definitively exactly what it is. I think there are so many different possibilities that are viable the idea of getting hit by an EMP blast that blast could have come from a nuclear detonation over a american military installation in the pacific islands yeah that's yeah i don't know how many of those are close to australia or anything like that i don't know if we have any in uh, indonesia or something like that but hmm. if you're looking for targets in that area that might be an idea you could also just get a <laughs> A windstorm whipped up by a detonation elsewhere. I'm not quite sure exactly how widespread shockwaves like that can pass, but oh. you know there are so many different possibilities. Yeah. They're nearly endless. Yeah. Not fully endless, but nearly. Close there are, enough.
0: There are American military installations in Australia.
1: Oh, really? Yes. I guess we're on good enough terms for that.
0: At the very, very end of this minute, Savannah spins her telling stick And the frame, it just like spins around and it's pretty awesome. And it gets cut off between minutes here the way we're watching it. So we don't really get to appreciate it. So the next time you're watching the movie just as a whole, watch her spin and it's pretty great.
1: Yeah, it's a nice maneuver. If I remember right, it's a spin and then she pushes in on the picture and then she kind of shakes the frame a little bit. Yeah. To really add in the drama of the plane crash. Yes. (laughs) Hmm. <laughs> Shem, now that we're here at the end of this minute for today is there anything you'd like to plug anything you'd like to point people towards so that they can find more of you on the internet?
2: Uh, yeah, sure um, if you want to see my videos about Mad Max and the things, you know, behind the scenes when it comes to those movies uh, just go and type in um, on YouTube uh, Mad Max Bible uh, if you want to be a little bit more specific than Mad Max timeline of events then you're probably going to find some Videos that you might find interesting and pretty long too. I don't upload as much as I would like to right now, but there's a whole lot of things that I'm really, uh, I'm really planning on on uploading, and it just takes a lot of time to research this properly and you know, uh, and to edit all this stuff. But yeah, if you want to see all this stuff, then you know, go right ahead, Mad Max Bible on YouTube, and you know, enjoy the videos. Super easy to find. As
1: for us, we are going to come back on Wednesday. Savannah is going to continue the tell and recount how the survivors found the crack in the earth settled in the secluded spot but eventually got nostalgic for civilization and modern luxuries and we'll go from there so come back for that the mad max minute podcast is a fan project by rick and julia ingham
0: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com and our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com.
0: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group Mad Max minute beyond microphone
1: if you'd like to support the podcast visit madmaxminute.com where you can check out our t public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link
0: thank you for joining us for minute 55 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody!